Hello and welcome to the latest episode of our Private Wealth and Charities podcast series and the next instalment of our podcasts on the HSF Trust Companies Survey. In these podcasts, we discuss the results of an extensive survey of trust companies that we concluded earlier this year in January 2020. And we are counting down from seven to one the most significant risks that trust companies face today. My name is Richard Norwich and I'm a partner specialising in private wealth, trust disputes and charities matters. And today I'm joined by Susanna Cogman, a partner in our corporate crime and investigations practice, and Daniel Hyde, an associate also in that team. So today we've reached the silver medal position, second place on the podium in our countdown of risks faced by trust companies. And we're focusing on money laundering risks. So respondents to our survey identified AML compliance issues as the second most significant risk they face. In fact, over 75% of our survey respondents ranked AML compliance within their top three issues. So to talk about this and to help unpick some of the key difficulties facing trust companies in terms of AML compliance, I'm joined by Susanna and Dan. Thanks, Richard. Always happy to talk about AML compliance. Thanks for hosting us, Richard. So, Susanna, we've seen considerable press coverage about AML, uh, what one might call scandals in recent years, including exposés like uh, the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers. And there's been a significant focus on offshore wealth and on the risk that complex structures could be used to launder the proceeds of tax evasion or perhaps corruption. Whatever one's view about those particular exposés, it seems clear that they've driven regulatory focus and a number of recent legislative initiatives. So before we start to interrogate the results from our survey in a bit more detail, can you provide us with perhaps a a high-level overview of the types of developments that have been occurring in this space recently? Yes, of course. So the world of AML regulation is continually evolving to keep ahead of, or at least try and keep pace with, the criminal world. And much of the AML legislation that our listeners will be subject to is driven by international standards, and in particular, the recommendations promulgated by the Financial Action Task Force, also known as FATF, an intergovernmental standard-setting body. So the last major revision to the FATF recommendations was actually back in 2012, but there have been a number of changes since then. For example, quite recently, a new recommendation in respect of the regulation of virtual assets. And the FATF has also published some useful guidance papers on implementing risk-based approaches in various sectors and some thematic papers actually most recently in relation to COVID-related money laundering and terrorist financing risks. But what I think may be of particular relevance to listeners is an area of focus which has actually been of particular significance in the EU and since it was originally driven by the UK also in the British Overseas Territories. And that's in relation to beneficial ownership transparency, where the EU position uh, now gold plates the relevant FATF recommendations. So the EU's fourth money laundering directive, which member states were required to implement in 2017, introduced a requirement for member states to maintain registers of the beneficial owners of companies and certain taxable trusts, that is, trusts which generated tax consequences. In the UK, we had the pre-existing Companies House Register of Persons with Significant Control, and that PSC regime effectively covered the requirement to have uh, beneficial ownership registers for corporates. The requirement to register the beneficial owners of trusts, which have tax consequences, was implemented via HMRC's Trust Registration Service. 
Now, this obligation as it relates to trusts was significantly expanded by the fifth money laundering directive. And most of that directive was required to be implemented by member states um, earlier this year on 10 January. As from the 10th of March, member states have been required to ensure, in respect of the trusts register, that all express trusts should report beneficial ownership information to a central register. There's also an expansion in the range of people who should be entitled to access the information on that register. The UK government consulted earlier this year on how these requirements should be implemented in the UK, and we're still awaiting the outcome of that consultation. So a bit of a, a moving feast, but some significant changes there in respect of the trust registration requirements are still pending in the UK. And relevantly to both companies and trusts, the fifth directive also requires regulated firms to report any discrepancies they identify between beneficial ownership uh, information that they obtain during Know Your Client or KYC processes and the information stored on the relevant national register. And those obligations to report discrepancies have been brought into force in the UK and a number of member states. So clearly the fifth directive is of primary concern for trustees regulated within the EU and trusts which may fall within the scope of these new registration requirements. And they may not impact all of our listeners. But the trends in beneficial ownership transparency, I think, are worth watching. And there are a number of offshore jurisdictions, including, for example, Jersey, Guernsey and the Isle of Man, which have uh, fairly recently announced their intention to implement within the next couple of years public access to their corporate ownership registers. You asked about recent developments, and I've just run through a couple, but the other point I would highlight is not a specific legislative one, but just to observe that AML retains or remains a key focus for regulators in many jurisdictions, and we are continuing to see quite a lot of AML-related regulatory enforcement activity. So that's both in relation to systems of controls failures and also where there's evidence of actual money laundering, so where money laundering risk has crystallised. So I'm afraid for listeners, this is an area where we have both regulation, which is continuing to involve, and that's coupled with genuine enforcement risk if firms don't keep on top of those requirements. Mm, interesting. It does seem to be a dynamic regulatory environment for many TCSPs at the moment. So Turning to the specific questions we asked in relation to AML compliance, the first that we asked was, what are the most significant AML compliance challenges for trustees? And here are the responses. So 37% said it was understanding and verifying the journey to wealth, the, the source of funds of their clients. 26% said the effective monitoring of client activity. 24% said it was understanding and verifying the complex ownership structures of their clients. 18% said effective staff training and awareness. 8% said it was the basic identification and verification of the identity of their clients. And 8% said it was dealing with PEPs, politically exposed persons. So Dan, as a preliminary question, can you explain, is there a difference between this term source of wealth and the term source of funds? So the precise interpretation of these terms may vary between jurisdictions, but uh, in the UK at least, source of wealth refers to how a client came to acquire their total wealth, whereas source of funds refers to the origin of the funds involved in the business relationship or transaction with the regulated firm. That's not just a question of where the funds are transferred from, as it also encompasses the activity that generated them. 
And, and so did you find it surprising that understanding and verifying source of wealth and source of funds was the most significant challenge for 37% of respondents? It wasn't too surprising, no. In the private wealth context in particular, understanding client source of wealth and source of funds is a critical step in mitigating money laundering risk. The more routine identification and verification checks can establish that your client is who they say they are. But that's really only the tip of the KYC iceberg, so to speak. It's critical to get comfortable that a client has a legitimate source of assets. And equally, this is an area where regulatory guidance is often quite vague about the specific steps that should be taken, particularly in relation to verifying any narrative explanation, for example, that the client has provided. I think the question of verification is interesting, and it also chimes with the fact that 24% of respondents uh, said that their biggest challenge was in understanding and verifying complex ownership structures of their clients. Um, So complex ownership structures, of course, aren't themselves uncommon in a number of sectors and a number of transaction types, and including in in the private wealth space, of course. Um, So I'd expect that grappling with these structures would be relatively routine, but there will often be quite nuanced decisions regarding how far to go in verifying them, and particularly how far to go in verifying the reason for them. So if a private wealth client, for example, presents an existing structure to a firm and explains the rationale for it is seemingly legitimate tax planning reasons, or perhaps a concern with protecting privacy, how far should the firm go in trying to verify that explanation? Uh, I'm afraid I don't really have time in this podcast to to address that question in any detail. And it's also, of course, a fact and jurisdiction specific one. But it's quite interesting to note, um, because it's very recent and on topic, uh, there is some interesting commentary in a recent UK High Court judgment, uh, NCA and Baker and others, which relates to the UK's new unexplained wealth order regime where the judge uh, specifically said that the use of complex offshore corporate structures and trusts is not, without more, a ground for believing that they've been set up or are being used for wrongful purposes, such as money laundering. Uh, She went on to say there are lawful reasons, privacy, security, tax mitigation, why very wealthy people invest their capital in complex offshore corporate structures and trusts. But the National Crime Agency in the UK have said they will be appealing this judgment. And so there may be a bit more judicial analysis to watch out for in due course, which may help shed further light on how these structures are viewed, which in turn may feed into the level of evidence one might um, want to look for in trying to ensure that the purpose of the structure is properly understood. So let's move on to uh, the the next question in the survey. So we we asked how TCSPs had been most affected by AML compliance measures, and and here are their answers. So 59% said it was uh, the cost and complexity of onboarding new clients. 27% said they'd been required to hire more properly trained staff. 10% said there'd been no effect on their business. 4% uh, have been required to exit a business line, so for example, certain products or jurisdictions. And indeed, no respondents said they've been unable to onboard a large number of potential new clients. Any surprises there? Uh, I suppose only that 4% of respondents have had to exit an entire business line. Um, As we'll come to uh, perhaps discuss later, AML regulation over recent years has moved away from a tick box compliance approach and towards a more risk-based approach. 
Um, so typically in, in most AML regulation, there'll be a base level of relatively prescriptive requirements, particularly in relation to customer due diligence, which firms must comply with. But that's not the be all and end all. And it's normally up to each individual firm to determine how it can effectively manage its AML risk exposure through KYC monitoring and other processes. Now, that may include terminating an existing relationship or ceasing to offer a particular product, but that would be in circumstances where the firm is of the view that it can't effectively manage the associated money laundering risk. Uh, and you'd expect that to be relatively infrequent. Um, of course, it may be that our respondents formed the view that in these circumstances, they, they could uh, potentially manage the risk, but could only do so at prohibitive cost. Um, and so they prudently exited those relevant products or services. And if that is the case, I think that just underlines that AML compliance can be quite a heavy burden for firms, particularly for smaller providers with fewer compliance resources. Absolutely. And uh, I think that moves us neatly onto our next question, which is around the types of steps AML authorities may be able to take to assist TCSPs with this compliance burden. So 43% said that more guidance and or more prescriptive requirements would be helpful in providing more clarity for trustees on their requirements. 39% said it would be both unhelpful and helpful. And 18% said that it would be unhelpful because it could lead to a box ticking approach rather than the focus on mitigating AML risk. So, Dan, it seems a bit of a mixed bag uh, amongst those responses there, a fairly even split between those who would find more regulatory guidance and prescriptive measures helpful and those who acknowledge that such a step would be both helpful and unhelpful. What, what do you make of that? Yes, it's a difficult question, and the answers show that firms themselves don't share the same view on the means by which regulators should regulate. On the one hand, as Susanna just mentioned, the latest trend in AML compliance has been a shift away from being very prescriptive as to how entities must manage their AML risk. The obvious risk with this approach is that providers may feel, and clearly here 43% of them do feel this, that there's a lack of clarity on what they should be doing and what effective AML risk management looks like in practice. Uh, on the other hand, and as we flagged in our survey question, where regulations are prescriptive and where they're followed to the exclusion of considering and addressing money laundering risk in a thoughtful way, compliance measures may fail to provide effective protection against money laundering. Money laundering risk can be quite nuanced and require judgment to manage. Criminals are continually developing new techniques and using a one-size-fits-all approach can often result in firms focusing too much on simply ticking off the steps that are specified in the regulations. It's probably also fair to say that the extent and quality of guidance can vary considerably between sectors and also between jurisdictions. And perhaps that feeds into the fact that 39% said that more guidance would be both helpful and unhelpful. Possibly a middle ground between over and under prescription could be providing more guidance to firms, but perhaps doing so on a risk profile basis. So what would effective AML risk management look like for a small firm versus a medium firm or a large firm? I suspect that in current circumstances, though, that's probably not high on the priority list for regulators. 
So Susanna, coming back to you, uh, you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast both the fourth and fifth EU money laundering directives and particularly the position for trust and company service providers in relation to beneficial ownership register obligations. Now, we also asked a question about this in our survey and whether they thought these types of obligations would A, be useful at managing AML risk and B, whether TCSPs would find these obligations burdensome to implement. Uh, These were the results. So 43% said they were not useful and burdensome. 37% said they were useful in the fight against money laundering, but burdensome for trustees. 14% said they would be useful in the fight against money laundering. And 6% said they were not useful. So again, a bit of a mixed bag, but generally our respondents agreed that they thought they would be burdensome. Yes, and I must say, after many years working in this space, the concept of people finding uh, or considering AML regulation to be burdensome was not an enormous surprise. I should say there are two related obligations in the fifth directive which are relevant in this context and which I touched on earlier. The first is the expansion of the trust's beneficial ownership register, and the second is the obligation to report discrepancies between information collected during CDD and information on the register. For UK listeners, we'll include a link in the show notes to our briefing discussing these and the other five MLD changes in more detail. Now, overall, 51% of respondents thought that these measures were a useful mechanism to address money laundering, kind of with some thinking they were also burdensome and others not commenting on that. Time will have to tell whether they're proved right. The obligations are very new and even now have yet to be implemented in a number of member states. Back in February, the Commission sent letters of formal notice to eight EU member states that had failed to implement the majority of the fifth directive on time on the 10th of January. And many countries are also late in implementing the expanded trust register requirements, which, as I mentioned earlier, were due for implementation in March. I think what I would say is that whenever these measures are introduced and have an opportunity to build up a bit of a track record, Whether or not the registers are useful really depends on what the authorities go on to do with the information provided to them and the discrepancies that are reported to them. And it will be really interesting to see whether any data becomes available on this subject. And I think that's something which industry should push for where possible. As a sort of general comment, it seems to me there's often a poor evidential base to support additional AML compliance obligations which are placed on businesses. And those obligations may or may not be worthwhile, but it's difficult to find a way to be sure unless we have that kind of hard data uh, to stand behind them. Thanks very much, Susanna. Now, just as we uh, wrap up, any final comments from you, Dan? Well, just to add that we also invited additional comments from respondents. And one of those was in relation to AML compliance. And it raised an interesting concern about AML compliance in practice. The view that was expressed was that third-party firms, even when dealing with trust companies in jurisdictions that have comparable AML compliance standards, are often unwilling to rely on the customer due diligence or KYC that's already been undertaken by the trust company themselves and with respect to the underlying client. Of course, it was quite limited information in the comments and we can only speculate as to the potential reasons for this in that particular circumstance that uh, they were referring to. But In the UK, at least, the reliance provisions in our money laundering regulations have been subject to quite a bit of criticism over the years. They're not very user-friendly. 
And the firm which is doing the relying must consider on a risk-based approach that they're happy to rely on the other firm. They also must agree on various other matters with the firm. They must have access to the underlying client information and they still also retain liability if the underlying KYC is inadequate. So although the survey comment was perhaps anecdotal, it's certainly consistent with the view that these provisions aren't perhaps fulfilling their purpose of managing money laundering risk but also avoiding unnecessary duplication in the KYC checks. Thanks very much, Dan. Thanks, Susanna. And on that note, we will conclude this podcast on the HSF Trust Company Survey. Thanks so much for listening to us today. We hope you found it of interest. If you'd like more information about trust, charities and private wealth and our views on some interesting recent cases from this sphere, please head over to the HSF Private Wealth and Trust Disputes blog by following the link in the podcast notes. If you're interested in the type of matters our corporate crime and investigations or our private wealth and charities practices may be able to assist you with, please also follow those links in the podcast notes, which will take you over to our website. And we'll be back soon with the next instalment of our series on the HSF Trust Companies survey, which will reveal the final, most significant risk faced by trust companies.